10 is where we want to go tonight. 10th chapter of the Gospel of John. A very familiar scripture. Verse 10, words of Jesus. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I have come that they might have life, that they might have it more abundantly. What is life? How would you define life? Some life is just mere existence, just being alive, the daily grind. To others, it's their achievements, their goals, their ambitions, their aspirations. To a salesman, his life is making the sale, clenching the deal. That's where he gets his buzz from. To the center forward, it's scoring the goal, isn't it? For a politician, it's a seat in the bench, preferably the front bench, not the back bench. For the actor, it's the big part, perhaps it's winning the Oscar. For the athlete, no doubt, coming up in this Olympic year, all their striving, all their efforts, their whole life is geared to that one moment on the track or the field where they will win the medal. To many, many people, life is a home, it's a decent job, it's a good car, it's a partner, it's having children, two weeks in the sun, simple things. But is this what Jesus had in mind when he said there, I am come that you may have life and that you may have it in abundance? Do you think that's what he was thinking about any of those things? Not that there's anything wrong with any of those things. All of them that I mentioned tonight are fine. All of them are good in and of themselves. But is that what Jesus is talking about? Because if that's what he's talking about, then life would be an abundance of those things. And if you didn't have an abundance of those things, then that would not be life. So I can't imagine that per se is what Jesus is talking about because he also said that man's life does not consist in the abundance of things which he possesses. Whatever kind of life that you and I had before we met Christ certainly wasn't an abundant life and it was certainly way less than God intended. Far, far short of God's ideal. In fact, life at its very best before we met Christ was on an entirely different level. And it's only whenever we met Christ that we began to discover what he truly meant by having life. The Apostle Paul sums it up very nicely in Philippians 1.21. He says, for me to live is Christ. That was the center and circumference of his life. That was life to him, to live for Christ. That, once we get the idea of that, the concept of living for Christ is life and life indeed, then, of course, everything changes. Now, it wasn't always that way for Paul. If you were to read Philippians 3, where he talks about 
all the things that he was before he met Christ. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He, I mean, he, was, he had the whole Jewish pedigree. He sat at the very feet of Gamaliel, who was the greatest rabbi of his day. Uh, and, and Paul, Saul as he was then, was his protege. He would be the one that would be next to him. He would be the one he was mentoring. He would be the most famous rabbi in the land after Gamaliel at some point in his life. And, and that was his mission. That was what his goal was. That his, his whole life was lived for that until he met Christ. And then he says, all those things that were gained to me, he says, I've counted loss as, as rubbish compared to this life in Christ. John said, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Peter said, as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. As the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. In him was life. And his life was the light of man. There's a number of different words translated in the New Testament that means life. Suke. P-S-U-C-H-E, suke, is natural life. It's the breath of life. It's spirit, it's soul, it's body. Are you alive? Are you living tonight? Can you move your fingers? That's suke. You've got the breath of life in you. All men possess suke. Bios is another word, means duration of life or the means of life, or the maintenance life, or the livelihood of life. All of us maintain a life and a lifestyle. All of us have livelihood. We've got to live in this natural world that we're in. So all men possess bios, B-I-O-S. Anastrophe, A-N-A-S-T-R-O-P-H-E. Anastrophe is manner of life. It's behavior of life. It's conduct of life. And all of us has a manner of life. Again, lifestyle, could you say? All of us behave in certain ways. All of us conduct ourselves in certain ways. So all men possess anastrophe. But it's zoe. Z-O-E, pronounced zoe. Zoe is life in the absolute sense. Life as God has it. Life as His Son has it. Life as God intends us to have. In Him was Zoe, life. And His Zoe, His life was the development or the light of man. So, even though all men has suke, bios, anastrophe, but only those who are in Christ has zoe life, 
which is the very life of God himself, which is the life that's in his Son, that we have that life within us today, life as God intended. This is the life, this Zoe life, that changed us and made us different than all other men. So when Jesus talks about life and having it in abundance, that's the life that he's talking about. He's talking about his life in us, the life that the Father's got, the life the Son got, a measure of that life living within us. What does that do to us? Well, it means that we have a new nature. 2 Peter 1 and 3, Peter says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these we might become partakers of the divine nature. Suke, bios, anastrophe will never ever cause a man to be a partaker of this new nature. Only Zoe life does that. Only the life of God can do that. Only the quickening life of the Spirit, only the life giver, Christ, can do that to us. And so we have a, a new nature. Thank God for a new nature. Amen? You know, the reality is if our nature hasn't changed, then we're not saved. That's the brutal, honest truth of it. If our nature hasn't changed, we're not saved. That doesn't mean that we can't feel. It doesn't mean that we're sinless. But it means that the propensity of our life, the overwhelming majority of our life has changed. And we know it's changed. And everybody else's know it's changed. But if people don't see the change and they don't know it's changed, then you've got a question. Is it changed? So we have a new nature. And thank God we have a new start. Your past doesn't count against you anymore in Christ. In other words, our sins are totally and forever forgiven. Now, depending what those are, perhaps there's consequences and ramifications of them that society may demand, and that's fair enough, that's okay. As far as God's concerned... What does the Bible say in Romans 8 and 1? Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And so we have a new start. If any man is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. A species that has never been before. Something supernatural has changed within our hearts. The abundant life of Christ has come in and it has made us different. And all other men have made us different than we used to be. Not only that, but we have a new power. Romans 1 and 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of the sin of sin and death. Suddenly we have a new power to live this abundant life in Christ. Behold, Jesus says, I give you power over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by in any means hurt you. That's what he's talking about. This new power, this new nature, this new start in life. I remember that Jesus, when he came, he was the Word made flesh, according to John 1, was he not? 
He was literally the word of life made flesh. And as the living word of life, he came in different ways to different people. And that's the wonderful thing about this life that we have in Christ. It's changed all of us differently. It's changed all of us to one degree or another differently. He came to us and He changed us. And He comes to people at their point of need and changes them. To some, of course, it meant the life of Christ. When He came into their life, it meant health and cure. He was a great physician. Remember the woman with the issue of blood for 12 long years? Suddenly, she met this living word of life in the flesh, Christ himself. And she was marvelously and instantly and totally healed. Remember the woman that was bowed over for 18 years? It's a long time, isn't it? 18 years. And suddenly, she comes into contact with the very life of God and Christ, and she's healed. The man at the pool of Bethesda, 38 years he suffered. And then he met the life of God in Christ. And he was forever changed. To some it meant the supplying of needs. The very first miracle that Jesus did was simply supplying a need, wasn't it? That young married couple in Cana of Galilee. 120 gallons of wine he gave them. 120 gallons. That's a lot, isn't it? Now, I got to believe that that was the fact he said it was the, the, the host said it was the best wine. You've kept the best wine until now. And I got to believe that that was a wine that did not make people drunk. I could not, sorry if I got onto this, I could not ever see Jesus at a party lasting seven days with everybody around him drunk. I couldn't see Christ in the midst of that, could you? No, I, I, I'm sorry, but I couldn't see that. But anyway, I'll get off that. Feeding of the 5,000, miracle catch of fish. So many times, Jesus met a material, physical need. And he demonstrated this abundant life that he had. For some, it meant forgiveness of sins. The woman taken in adultery. We preached on that just a few weeks ago in that series we did. What a beautiful, wonderful story of the grace of God and how tenderly and lovingly Jesus dealt with that woman and forgave her her sins. And it was a sin. It was a terrible sin. But he graciously and lovingly forgave her and sent her away and says, now don't ever do that again. But you're forgiven. And so to her, this life of God met her in forgiveness, Peter's denial. If ever anybody needed forgiveness, it was Peter. And he got forgiven. To others, it meant deliverance from dark powers. Do you remember in Mark 5, the man of Gadara? How that Jesus went there over the Sea of Galilee. And when he got there, that man who was living in the tombs, 
who was cutting himself with rocks and sharp stones, who was naked, who was running around shouting and screaming and the townspeople were frightened of him and sometimes they sneaked up on him and bound him with cords and chains and he snapped them and broke them. Such was the supernatural power that possessed him and how that when Christ met him and he begged the Lord that those demons could stay in the land. And he says, what is your name? He says, Legion, for we are many. There was 2,000 pigs standing over there. And he gave them permission to go into the pigs. And they ran down, the, jumped over the cliff and into the sea. 2,000. Now there's demon possession, if ever there was. No wonder the man was breaking chains. No wonder the poor man was going mad in the tombs. And so to that man, it was a wonderful deliverance. To somebody else, it was a great healing. To somebody else, it was the forgiveness of sins. To another person, it was the meeting of a material need. All of these were expressions of the abundance of the life that was in Christ that he gave. And here's the wonderful thing. The little book of Philippians. Chapter 2, and in verse 16. In fact, we'll read verse 14 to 16. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain nor labored in vain. Among whom you shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, holding fast the word of life. Now, The word of life is a very precious commodity, particularly in the world that's filled with death and darkness and deceit, crooked and perverse generation is the way that Paul puts it. Now the word of life here in Philippians 2.16 specifically is taken to mean the message of the gospel, the good news, the very word of God itself. That's what it's taken to mean. And our understanding of the Word of God itself. That's what Paul means here by the Word of life. This wonderful Word that we have got in our laps tonight is the Word of life, if we know how to use it. Now, Paul says here two things. He said, we are to hold forth that's what the authorized version says. The New King James says we are to hold fast. Depending on which translation you're looking at tonight, it'll say either or. To hold forth or to hold fast. Now this is two meanings. And one is the consequence of the other. Both meanings are brought out in our lives. We are to hold forth the word of light, life and we're to hold fast the word of life. We're to hold out the word of life and we're to hold onto the word of life. The Living Bible puts it this way, holding out to them 
the word of life. The NIV says, as you hold on to the word of life. Vincent, he puts it this way. He says, the verb means to lay hold upon, to apply, to fix attention upon. We can only hold out what we have held fast. We'll say it again. You and I can only hold out this word of life if we've held fast to the word of life. So both are important and both apply to us. We hold out that which we have held fast to. Hebrews 10.23 says, Hold fast the confession of your faith. Hebrews 3.6, Hold fast our confidence and rejoicing. And Paul says, Hold fast that which is good. Now, In a sense, Christ is the living word of life. And this word, this written word of God is the living written word of God. And so we don't have Christ physically with us today, but we've got this living written word of God. It's alive. It's real. It's rhyme. It's important. It's vital. And as we hold this out, we're holding the Word out. We're holding Christ out to people. We're holding out the Word of life. What does that mean? In practice, here's what it means. It means that we are the only light in a world of darkness. The world is increasingly Becoming darker by the hour. Why is that? Because the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who believe not. Paul says, but let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul says, but we have the mind of Christ Paul says, we have the spirit of a sound mind. And so even though the enemy of men's souls are blinding men's eyes and blinding their minds to the truth, but because you and I have the life of God in us, this abundant life that Jesus talked about, our eyes have been opened, our minds have been opened to the truth. Notice here in Philippians 2, 15 and 16, we hold forth the word of life in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights. The world is controlled by spirits of darkness. Paul speaks about this in Ephesians chapter 6. He talks about the rulers of the darkness of this present world. He talks about principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. There is no question but that this world right now is governed by wicked, evil, perverse, crooked spirits who will try everything they can to try to snuff out the light of God. Not that they can, but they'll try it. That's why Jesus says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil, John 3.19. Peter says, We have been called out of darkness into his marvelous 
light. Paul says we have been delivered from the powers of darkness and have been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. So you and I, we have the only light in a world of darkness. You believe tonight the world's a dark place, don't you? Well, that's why God has given you the light to shine in it. Now, it would be very nice and it would be very comfortable if all of us could only work with other Christians. If all of us had a lovely working environment where there was no non-believers and there was none of that old language going on and there's none of that old stuff that they talk about after their weekends, that would be lovely and comfortable, but then you wouldn't be light there, would you? That's, that's where you're needed. That's, that's where the light is needed, isn't it? Not so much needed in church, it's needed out there where the darkness is. And so God has given us his light and he's put us in a world of darkness so that we may be light in the darkness. Light among your neighbors, light among your family, light along your work friends. So we're the only light in a world of darkness. And we have the only life in a world of death. Holding forth the word of life. What a terrible cycle of sin and death the world is trapped in. And it can't get out of it. There is no escape from it except in Christ. Because Christ is the only one who has the power over death. And that's why at the graveside of a beloved believer, we can rejoice even though there's human sadness because we know that Christ has overcome the grave. And he's overcome sin and death and hell. The world can't overcome it. Can't do it. Hasn't got the power to do it. But thank God we have. Romans 8 and 2 talks about the law of the spirit of life has made us free from the law of sin and death. We have the only life in a world of death. And we have the only truth in a world of deceit. A world of crookedness and perverseness. Isn't this world wrapped, warped, wrapped, warped and depraved? Isn't it twisted? Isn't it corrupt? Isn't it perverse and perverted? And the only yardstick we can hold against that is the word of life. The only plumb line we can use against it is the word of life. The only measuring rod we can live by is the word of life. Imagine a government whose yardstick was the word of life. Imagine for a moment. Wouldn't that be wonderful if their yardstick was the word of God? If every decision they made, if every law they instituted was based on the word of God, but a lot less injustice, wouldn't there? A lot more righteousness in the nation. But of course it isn't that. But if it was, it would be lovely. One day it will be, but if it was now, it would be wonderful. If Mr. Cameron and Mr. Clegg, if they were sitting debating in their chambers and before they passed a law or made a resolution, 
if they said, let's pray about this. Let, let's, let's turn to God's Word and see what, what God would say about this. Let, let's see if this would glorify God, what we're about to do in this nation. Wouldn't that be wonderful? You say, David, you're dreaming. Yes, I am. Really am. Really am. But that would be wonderful, wouldn't it, if that was to happen? Imagine a country whose only yardstick was the teachings of Christ. It would be a fairer world, wouldn't it? The poor would be a lot better off today, wouldn't they? The Bible's a lot to say about the rich and the poor, hasn't it? The book of James has a lot to say about that. Let me just read you a couple of little things here. Let me show you a photograph first of all. You may not fully see this where you're sitting. This was in the paper yesterday. There's a young 27-year-old young woman. Looks pretty. It's all pampered and painted and dressed and she's got her bling on. Sitting out in the sunshine looking as happy as Larry. Nice picture of that, isn't it? The trouble is, it's the portrait of a pitiless murderer paying her debt to society. She's 27 years old. She's been in jail since she was 14. Because her and another 15-year-old, they mercilessly murdered an old-age pensioner let me just read a little bit of this. Tanned, tattooed, heavily made up and dripping with cheap jewellery, she's all set for a night in the town. After which Sarah Davy will continue serving her indefinite sentence for murdering a helpless widow. Davy, one of the most notorious young killers of modern times, is starting to taste freedom after being locked up for 13 years. Not only is this 27-year-old given regular hair and beauty treatment in, in Asham, Grange open prison. She is even allowed nights out and shopping trips nearby York, mixing with innocent young people unaware of her violent past. Davy was 14 when she and 15-year-old Lisa Healy tortured and murdered Lily Lily, then dumped her body in a wheelie bin and pushed it through the streets before overturning it into a canal. The two girls who had run away from home had befriended the lonely 71-year-old after being invited in for a cup of tea. They taunted her, squirted her with shampoo, cut her legs with a knife. After choking her with a gag tied so tightly that her false teeth were driven down her throat, they crammed her body into the bin and threw, it into, and threw in it a framed photograph of her son as a baby. Then they took over her house, making hundreds of calls from her phone, using her pension money to buy Christmas chocolate. And there she is, swaggering around prison. Female prisoner said she expects people to be scared of her because of what she's in for. Back in Mrs. Lilly's hometown, former neighbors were shocked to learn about her killer's lifestyle. Retired doctor's receptionist said, why should she get such special treatment? What happened to justice? Lilly has not been given any. Well, he was just a poor old lady who had lived on her own for a long time. She did not harm anyone or deserved a bit of, she deserved a bit of dignity in her old age. Those girls robbed her of that, and they should be properly punished, not made up to look like a model. There is a nation 
whose moorings has been severed from the word of life. There is the justice in a nation that used to base its laws on the Ten Commandments, but no more. Here's a man just last week, a man called Paul Houston. He was a father. He made an impassioned plea for justice after a last-ditch attempt to deport his daughter's killer ended in failure. Paul Houston's 12-year-old daughter Amy was not down and left to die, trapped under the car driven by an illegal immigrant, Azul Muhammad Ibrahim. But the Court of Appeal dismissed an attempt to overturn two earlier decisions allowing Ibrahim, who's 33, to stay in Britain because he has a right to a family life. As the judges announced their verdict, a clearly distressed Mr. Houston shouted across the court, My lords, what about my right to family? Amy was my child. Where's the justice? Later he told the Daily Mail, I had to say something even if they didn't reply. Amy was my world, my only child, and she had such a bright future. Now you know what happened? When this guy was arrested, they decided they were going to temporarily deport him until he could go back to Iraq and then apply officially for a visa to come and live in Britain. And they waited six years and in the six years that they waited, guess what? He made sure he got himself a wife and a family. And then they finally did deport him. And he sneaked back in, hidden in the back of a lorry. And he continued to commit more crimes, more criminal acts. And he's still there today, walking free. No wonder the man said, what about my right to family? What about the victim's rights? Why am I reading you that? To show you what happens whenever we divorce ourselves from the word of life. That's when a nation goes down the tubes. Tessa, do you know in America last week that a church, see this is not just Britain talking about, that a church in America made a beautiful Easter advert, very professionally done. And they wanted to show it in the local cinemas as an invitation to an Easter church service this Easter. And they spent a lot of money, got it professionally done because it had to be on a big screen, it had to pass all kinds of uh, tests to be broadcastable. And the cinema people admitted that it was well done, that it was professionally done, that they could find no fault in that, but they couldn't show it Here's the reason, because it mentioned the name of Jesus. Isn't it ironic that just about every movie that ever be shown in that cinema house mentioned the name of Jesus in a blasphemous way? <laughs> but sadly, America has gone the way of Britain where they're divorcing themselves from the word of life. And so there's a battle today, a big battle, between light and darkness, between death and life, between right and wrong, between the, the way of the word of life and the way of the world. You know what? We're caught in the middle. We're caught in the middle. 
Now, we're the ones that has to stand for the word of life because that's the only truth in a world of deceit and of crookedness and perverseness. And the good news is tonight that because we are in Christ, we have got the life of Christ, this abundant life of Christ in us. We have the word of life in us. We have the word of Christ in us. We have Christ himself in us, the hope of glory. And so there's a battle on. There's a battle raging. And it's raging against us. So we've got to be prepared, haven't we? We've got to have this life of Christ in us. Because if we don't have this life of Christ in us, then we're not going to last. We're not going to make it, are we? And it's not just coming along to church and singing a few nice little songs and waving our hands. No, that's nice. That's good. It's, it's more than that. It's not just coming listening to sermons. It's more than that. It's knowing who we are and knowing what we possess. And knowing that in these last days, there is going to be a great division, and it's coming more and more and more. <laughs> Not that we were looking for it, but we have no option. It's coming. And we'll be the ones that will have to face the music because we're the ones with the life of God in us. And do you think the devil's not going to come against that life that's in you? You better believe he will. Do we need the life of God in us more than we've ever needed it before? But thank God we have the life of Christ. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it in abundance. So whatever comes down our path, we have the life of Christ in us to overcome the darkness that's out there. And there's a lot of it out there. And some of you are facing it in your workplace. You're facing it in your school. You're facing it in your universities. You're facing it in your hospital wards. You're facing it everywhere you go. And you'll stick out like a sore thumb for what you believe. But the word of life is working in you. Amen. Come on, let's pray. Lord, we bless you and we thank you tonight that you have given us this wonderful word of life. Thank you for the abundance of your life within our hearts and spirits. Lord, help us to draw from it. At times we feel weak or feel afraid or feel cowardly, help us to draw from the life of Christ that is within us, that we may be the people that God wants us to be. So we thank you, Lord, for your word that's in our hearts tonight. We thank you for Christ in us, the hope of glory. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who lives within this temple of our bodies tonight. We bless you, Lord, in this dark world that we are lights that shine. And we're light and life bringers. And we hold forth the word of life. So Lord, as we go out into our working week, Lord, as we face, who knows what we'll face? Only you know that. Help us, Lord, to be those lights and help us to bring life in the name of Jesus. We honor you and we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.